This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. So have you heard of a, a lady called Belle Gibson? No. So I hadn't either. I watched a documentary about her. So she was an Instagram influencer from like the mid-2010s. And she's Australian and she claimed to have had a brain tumour and had healed or had, had lived with terminal cancer for five years when she was given six months she was given this this diagnosis and then she claimed to have lived with this for five years by just eating natural foods and not following any like medical intervention so she was a big advocate for like natural whole foods and and alternative remedies and stuff like that and she gained this sort of big following on instagram as a result of this and a lot of people sort of followed her a lot of people with serious medical conditions and then I didn't watch the whole documentary, so I'm assuming at the end of this, it turns out that she's fraudulent because that's the way it's sort of angled. But the bit that I found quite interesting was when they were talking about uh, she launched a food app, and the food app was about what sort of food you should eat. And as they were describing the foods and trying to make it sound like it was, you know, this really hard draconian style diet, I was listening to it and I'm thinking, that sounds like a pretty standard diet start point to me. So let me let me walk you through some of the things. All right, okay. I'm ready. So, no processed foods. That's a no-brainer. Right. Uh, no alcohol, no gluten, no dairy. Plant-based in the main, but not plant-based in, in the vegan style. Plant-based is in the majority of the food is fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, fish, white meat. In the documentary, they're trying to make out with, with one of these people who followed this for a while. She's saying, I couldn't have this, you know, I couldn't have this bottle of wine and then she pulls out a pre-made carton of soup you know that Covent Garden soup and then she goes I can't have this either and then the interviewer goes well why can't you have that that seems pretty healthy to me and she goes because it's processed and I was thinking well of course it's processed it's a carton of soup you don't know how much salt's in there you don't know what else they've put in there you have no idea I mean it says on the back what's in it but you don't you don't really know the extras they put in there of course it's processed why can't you just make your own soup and I was thinking Maybe I'm one of those people that's, that's like too harsh on people. Is this a harsh diet to follow? I, mean, I don't think it is. All I'm asking people, like, all you're asking people to do is to make their own food. You see, the reason why in this day and age you sound harsh, the right. fact that everything is so convenient, people are less likely to do something like, whoa, cook your own meal. Or, you know, make your own sauce. Yeah. Things that take an extra 20 minutes but make all the difference in the long run when you look at your health. You know, don't get me wrong. The woman, if if she's fake, that she's got a brain tumor and and all the rest. Wait, of it. so what part do you think is fake? Because you haven't finished watching it. Well, the I haven't. Brain finished... tumor. So, so what I think is is that she faked the brain tumor and did it to raise um, interest around her, and then she's used that as a vehicle to launch her app, which is based on this food system, which is where she's making her money. Some of the stuff she's advocating isn't bad things, and this is this is where I think things have got muddled because what she's you know, saying that you should do and, and follow doesn't sound bad to me. It sounds like a good base point to work from. And Very then, good base point. And then you, you work out from there because if you clear out all of these things and then you eat cleanly from that pos um, position forward, you can start reintroducing stuff and see what impact it has on you. That's it. And go from there. But that's why it's quite funny because um, I talk to my wife about th things like this all the time. And then she'll say, oh, yeah, I went for the healthy option. And then she'll pick up like um, a smoothie or something like that. I say to her, what do you think is in that to stabilise it? <laughs> From it leaving the warehouse where they produced it to get into the store, to get in your basket, to get in home, 
you actually don't know how long that's been. Yeah. That could have been months. Yeah. There's so many things that they have to put in everything that we buy to make it available to us in a certain period of time. That you might as well just do it yourself. So, have you heard of a doctor called Dr. Sebi? No. Okay, so I'm going to open up a rabbit hole right now. Okay, go for it. So, going back probably about 10, 15 years, probably a bit more listeners, I'm, it's a bit vague, it's been a while since I've read anything or, you know, read his book or thought about this guy, but he claimed to cure cancer and AIDS. Right. In America. Is it FDA? FDA, yeah. They took him to court twice. He won twice because he actually cured those things. A lot of famous people like um, people like Michael Jackson were known to have gone to see him. And what he said was, was kind of similar to that, but he took it even deeper. So the key thing is, this is, this is extreme for us. Mm. He said there's a list of fruit and veg, yeah. which, you know, is the original list. Then you've got all these other things that are hybrids. Okay. Now, only when you look into the fruit and veg, you realise a lot of the stuff we consume now actually didn't exist. It was made. Yeah. So, a lot of what he'd done was based on an alkaline diet. Okay. And saying that you needed stuff that had a positive charge and bring that into the body. Right. Rather than having things which actually have no charge and add nothing to your body. So, he said he would he stopped all meat. Right. Because yep. he said you're ultimately putting a dead thing into your body. I see. And everything was ba- based on plants and vegetables, but not the hybrids, the originals. Yeah. And when you read up on him and do all the research, it makes perfect sense. But it's so hard to follow. Nutrition is one of those areas that's, that's ever-expanding that they don't know too much about because there's there's a lot of stuff in this. So the the phrase, you are what you eat, is is quite significant. And I think people don't really appreciate that. They... They eat foods and they consume processed things and, and stuff like that. They don't really t- think too much about what they're what they're having because they're told that it's um, healthy. Like for example, low fat yogurts. In order, the worst thing. In order to make it low fat, you have to replace the fat with something, and they replace it with sugar. So the low fat yogurt is allowed to be in the health file because effectively it's low fat, and therefore under UK government regulations, that means it's healthier than a full fat yogurt even though the full-fat yogurt is natural. Yes, yeah, a mess. They do that all the time. Things with no sugar, but they just added a, a bucket load of sweetener. Yeah, and then the sweetener has an issue as well because it causes problems for your gut as well as for your brain. We could go into stuff like um, vegans. If it's for the purpose of health, but then there's one glaring fact which always comes back into my head. Everything they do with meat, all the drugs they put in it to make them bigger, stronger, and harvest a a better amount of meat of the animal they do the same thing for crops (laughs) yeah so if they do the same thing to get the most out of the produce for a crop as well as what they do for live cattle then you're not actually making that much of a difference because it's still going to be a messed up fruit and veg you're eating how many things do do we end up eating out of season because they can make them all year round they can create the environment but however on your cellular level have they created the same nutritional value? Probably not. Yeah, and then, I mean, you're totally right on that. And then the other factor you've got as well is a lot of the sort of reporting for for vegans about things is based on the US. And they've got different food regulations to Europe. I've heard it's a lot more slack. Yeah, like it's, it's massively, massively worse. So like you'll see these vegan like documentaries, I can't remember that one, what was that What the Health is one of them. 
and they talk about the the way cattle are raised or or whatever and you watch it and you think I don't know if that's true for Europe though I don't know if that's true for the EU I don't know if that's true for the UK because our regulations are so much stronger on these things maybe these animals can't be raised like that here but remember it's the EU because we're not part of the EU anymore yeah that was one of the reasons why underlining we didn't realise but the government wanted to leave because they had to be stuck on such a harsh rigid no oh no so it's apparently the UK was pushing for those strict measures when they were in the EU it wasn't the Europeans so it's Mm. us that was pushing so the likelihood is is when we're coming out is we'll have even stronger regulations around food let's hope yeah so there you go I keep saying I'm becoming a farmer (laughs) I'm getting very close I don't think becoming is the word. I think you are now. I haven't got to the part where I've got animals. I'm going to get animals. (laughs) The chicken is on the way. Mentally, in my head, the chicken is already here. Listeners, I eat a ridiculous amount of eggs. I'm not going to say that I'm some crazy bodybuilder that just eats them raw. But for me, when you think about like a breakfast choice, if you go away from the conventional thing that they want you to have, which is like a high level of carbs and sugar, and you go to an unconventional breakfast... I love an omelette. Yeah. I could eat an omelette most days. Yeah. I mean, I like scrambled eggs. I would I would do that most days. There's a big difference between cholesterol in the body and dietary cholesterol. One, one of the um, theories that's currently sort of out there on cholesterol, actually, is, is basically that uh, the reason why you get such a high level of cholesterol in the body is because you're not getting enough cholesterol in your diet. That's funny. So the body has to make more of it so, um, yeah synthetically and therefore it's it's bad for you whereas if you increase the amount of good cholesterol going in you decrease the need for the body to produce it that's a very interesting point but that's the thing about you know the basic nutritional rules right now it's scary because as you said at the beginning we almost know nothing yeah it sounds like we do but we don't it's, it, we've really scratched the surface I mean that you know that whole um, calorie number thing uh, you know so for the listener uh, four, uh, one gram of protein is equivalent to four calories. One gram of carbs is equivalent to four calories, and one gram of fat is nine calories. And I think alcohol is seven. They think that might be wrong. They think protein might be three calories. But what's funny about that is, how did it even come to that conclusion? If I remember correctly, they literally burnt food and timed how long it took to burn it completely to a char, and then based on the timings and the amount of fats and proteins they could extract from a thing. They worked out that that's how long it takes because calories are uh, an energy. So messed up. Yeah, and that, that sounds so outdated. Well, yeah, because it's Victorian. <laughs> so the the last time these calorie numbers were checked was the Victorian era. So bear that in mind because also um, a lot of the the other aspect is a lot of the books when they've got the calorie numbers and a lot of the apps are based on the books from the seventies. And if you look at the size of food portions in the seventies, you know they're a lot smaller. So if you take something like say uh, my fitness pal will have say one apple medium well how big is a medium apple no one knows right it turns out that the apples we're getting now as standard are large apples so if you think about it you're going to misjudge and the, the, we get into a minefield because you know you can roughly sort of w- figure out what calories you've got but unless you've got a little scale to measure all your food you're never going to know for some people having a set of scales is a good thing because they can actually they'll stay on a path and it will they'll be able to track everything quite well but there's a thin line a lot of people are in that that bracket where they may not even know it now but using a set of scales would just become obsessive yeah and, and then you get the eating disorders which you don't really need which comes back to the same point of if you if you follow a, a diet whereby you're choosing to eat 
fish, white meats that are low fat and healthy, and then you're choosing to eat fruits and vegetables as a majority of your diet. So you've effectively gone low um, complex carbs, good fats and proteins. You're unlikely to be able to overeat your calorie number. Yeah, that's true. Because and that's regardless of your metabolism. Yeah. Because have you seen how much broccoli you need to eat in order to get to like 300 grams of broccoli? <laughs> you mean 300 calories? 300 calories of broccoli. It's, it's like, I think it's like five bowls of broccoli. You're <laughs> never going to do it, ever. But it's funny, I used to carry around, or I did carry around last month, um, a lot of nuts, like cashew nuts and stuff in the car to yeah. always snack on, to get my omega-3 up. Yeah. Because I need stuff like that, but... It's funny. It, it's one of those things that, you know, you can... It's hard to get right and then maintain. You can have it perfect for, like, let's say a month or two, but then always something always slips in because of the convenience. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, for us as well, because we're on the move, you get those days whereby you haven't got any food. The hardest thing for me is I don't like cold food. <laughs> so until they create cars with microwaves in... <laughs> you can get an attachment for the lighter thing, you know. For a microwave, well, it can heat stuff up. I'm assuming you can attach it to a microwave. I don't know if it's got enough power, it might drain your battery, but <laughs> I'll be stuck here and never be able to move. But you've got some food with you, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I need, I need hot food. One thing we wanted to talk about today, listeners, was essential supplements. There's so many things on the market right now, but if we had to make a list of things which we thought were essential these are on the list yeah i think the way we've divided this list up as well is essential for your average person and essential for your athlete and more athletic person because there's a slight difference between them probably first on the list not necessarily most important vitamin c i love a bit of vitamin c i think that's one of the only supplements that i've been able to consistently take yeah, so vitamin C is a water-soluble vitamin, and it's which means effectively that you need to have it regularly in your diet. It's not stored in the body in the same way that uh, fat-soluble vitamins or minerals would be. So therefore you have to have it regularly in your diet every day. And obviously most people tend to know that it comes from, say, oranges and black currants and that kind of thing. It's in a lot of fruit. But you're saying you get it on a regular basis. That's the one thing that I can say consistently, I can take the tablets and I never forget. See, I don't take the tablets for, for vitamin C. I, I looked and I, I think I get enough from the amounts of fruits and vegetables I have because I have quite a decent amount of fruit, especially at the moment. So, I mean, today I've already had um, a banana, two satsumas and some blueberries. See, it's funny you say that. Over the last couple of years, the amount of natural, the amount of fruit I've been having has drastically decreased. Really? Some of it is because, like oranges, I'm allergic to some citrus fruits. Right. However, a lot of it is that thought process now, the which I have with um, like fruit and veg, like meat, whereby you actually don't know how much nutritional value is left in that thing by the time it gets to you. This is true. I mean, I'm 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 eating fruit uh, for the sweetness factor more than anything else because I'm trying to cut down on sugars. So therefore, I'm using the fruit naturally to kind of offset that, that issue so get the sweetness from the fruit and I can then look because at you got the balance of the water and the fiber yeah. with the sweetness yeah but yeah so that's for me it is it is essential but one one thing that I've started to lean towards now is mega dosing okay go on Do you know you get the daily recommended amounts yeah it's not common knowledge 
But if you look into stuff like vitamin C, um, I think vitamin D, a lot of the key ones, there's been periods where there's been scientists or chemists that have spoke about megadosing to get rid of certain things. So there's one guy called um, Linus Pauling who done a lot of research about vitamin C and megadoses and the fact that that could alleviate, I think, about 85% of normal common colds in the studies really? that he was doing. But he was... You know, there's a lot of things that come out that the study makes a lot of sense, but the whole culture gang up on them and make them out seem to be wackos. When you think yeah. about the logic of it, it makes sense. Let's put this into simple terms. So let's say you've got your vitamin C tablet. Yes. When you're talking mega dosing, are we talking like two tablets or like five tablets? See, that's the bit that I need to do a bit more research on. But my first thought would be, Double dosing. Twice yeah. your daily recommended amount a day. Yep. There's a uh, supplement you can buy in the market called uh, betaine HCL, which effectively increases your stomach acid. So you take the tablet and um, the idea is, is that by increasing the amount of stomach acid you produce, you break down foods better and more effectively and it's, it's better for your system. And uh, there's also theories that basically part of the reason why some people have excess like body fat is because their stomach acid doesn't like they don't produce enough stomach acid effectively so but the problem with that is how would you even know that you don't produce enough stomach acid to take something like this well you don't right so literally you're just blind guessing well what was so what's interesting in the research is um so on on the on the if you buy the the supplement on the supplement it'll tell you to take like one or two tablets or whatever it is but the research shows that what you should do is you should be taking the tablets every 15 minutes until you get that feeling of like um, acid reflux, like a, a burning fizzing sensation in your stomach. Because at that point, you've got an optimal amount of stomach acid and then you should eat. The idea is over time, you start producing your enough to break the food down because what's happened is is that the acid alkaline balance in, in your stomach is, is incorrect. So your stomach should be acidic in order to break down the foods. But because of the amount of acidic foods you've eaten, it means that your stomach is slightly more alkaline because the foods you're giving it are more acidic. So therefore, um, by when you start eating healthily and introducing healthy foods, you're eating a more alkaline diet in foods and therefore your stomach isn't producing enough stomach acid in reaction to break it down. So in order to break it down, you need to create that additional acidic sort of profile, which is why you take the tablets. That's how it works. That reminds me of a lot of the polyquin protocols when you're, ta when you're taking certain supplements. You have to take, you have to keep increasing the dosage until you got a certain effect on the body. Yeah. And then that's how you knew you had the right dosage, which is a smart way to do it because each person is going to be different. You can't say that. That's a problem with a lot of these supplements that, oh yeah, you know, take two a day. But you don't know if that two a day is actually too much for that person or too little for that person. You just got a random amount of people to do a study and said, oh, okay, that should be the average. Well, it's it's like a it's it's like the recommended dietary um, dietary intake thing, and they give you these numbers. Those numbers are based on averages of the population, not based on that individual. And like like for example, um, uh, we'll come to this later on uh, when we talk about uh, another supplement. But sodium, right? So sodium is present in processed foods. If you eat a high processed food diet and do very little exercise having too much sodium in your body, uh, in your diet is bad because you're taking too much of it excess, excessively and you're never getting rid of it. If you do a lot of um, exercise that, in, that makes you sweat, 
and you sweat a lot and you eat a low processed diet say like you're a triathlete or a long distance like runner like a marathon runner right you need additional sodium in your diet because you're losing so much of it from your training and then your diet isn't supplementing it because it has no processed foods which have higher sodium so having low sodium in that scenario is bad it's going to lead to poor performance but for the vast majority of people they should be worried about their sodium content so a mind-blowing fact that i found out about vitamin c gone most animals can make their own vitamin c in large amounts really but we can't it's almost as if we've lost it oh really so so basically at some point we've we've got rid of i wonder why that's at some point we must have or at some point it yeah we must have had the ability and lost the ability somehow it may be due to the foods that we eat, or it could be the fact that we oversupplied it in the body. There's some weird reason. There's there's also the, the human gene pool is really small. Like if you look at the difference between, it's why we have so many, there's so much a high chance of a defect in a child because the gene pool is so small because we are all effectively um, from a very narrow gene pool, whereas other animals aren't. So it could well be that whatever ancestors we had had that deficiency and they survived some sort of apocalypse and therefore we don't have it so would you recommend clients take it from like tablets or would you try and get them to get it from food so before my thought process was that food was optimal yeah and i'm still leaning towards it however because you know human nature and the greed of making as much money as possible for from any product means that you actually don't know what the nutritional value left in the fruit is by the time you get it yeah and where it's come from so for me, I think if you can find a really well-sourced supplement, I would say take that as well as taking fruit. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I think as a base point, if you're serious about improving your health, then you should be taking vitamin C on a regular basis. And it's an easy way to get it into your system and, and effectively not have to worry about, you know, sourcing it from fruits or vegetables, you know, mainly fruits. But effectively, you don't have to worry about, you know, have I eaten enough oranges today? But that's like, um, to go off topic slightly, super greens. Yeah. Powdered super greens, I think, is revolutionary because to get the same amount of content of it in your nutri- in your diet is nearly, nearly impossible. Yeah. But if you have that on top of whatever you have through food, perfect complement. Yeah, because it, it, it just adds in and, and tops it up, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to vitamin D. I think we both have vitamin D as a as a you know key supplement. Yes. So the reason why I have vitamin D as a key supplement is because the number one sort of source of it is sunlight. And I live in a country where it's not sunny. So one funny fact that, you know, I came across years and years ago was the fact that it would take me longer to get the same amount of vitamin D as it would for you to get it, Richard. Why is that? Because of my dark skin. Well, I'm glad you said that and I didn't. But, <laughs> Trying to be politically correct. Yeah. But yeah, because I'm black, it would take me longer to get the same amount. This is this is as well why you find that there's, um, say in Europe, there's, there's, an, there's an issue around um, darker skinned people having vitamin D deficiency because the sunlight here isn't strong enough for them to get enough sunlight. So they're, they're always encouraged to have a vitamin D supplement. But what's funny about that is, you know how things were made in perfect combination when you think about vitamin d absorption rates for skin colors and you think about where that skin color was meant to originate from in the world you realize why the sun is so strong there and why the sun sun isn't as strong here yeah 
So like it, the weather is different here, but it was suited for the population here. Whereas with my Caribbean origins, you may go there and think that's extremely hot, but that's at a perfect heat and amount of sun to give you the same amount of vitamin D you would get probably over here. Yeah, and then, I mean, what's, what's exacerbated this as well now is everyone works indoors in offices or underground and they spend their lives away from natural light. The other factor that comes in with uh, vitamin D is about the amount of IUs you take per day. For the listener, when we measure vitamin D, it's in IUs, not in grams or milligrams. So the NHS recommendation is 4,000 IUs a day, but not to take that every day, to make sure it's only taken at low um, light days. How do you even define a low light day? I don't know. What's interesting with that is, though, is I have got... 10,000 I use in my house as a supplement that I take five days a week in the winter time and I'm still taking now until we start getting sunny again and that came from the NHS so I've got contradicting yeah 2.5 times the, the recommended yeah. daily allowance per day and I'm still alive so I'm glad you're still alive uh, do you take a vitamin D supplement no I don't take any supplements for vitamin D because I just take a multivitamin okay I feel like there's certain things you know I need to take outside of the whole group and supplement more but I thought to do vitamin D on top of some of the others I'm taking I was like yeah that's a bit too much see I, I think I need it more because I feel like it's it's something that's important because of the lack of sun exposure I have and I've ironically found as well that since I've been taking it I've stopped getting burnt and I've got more of a tan from exposure to the sun which I think is because my body is more adept at handling and tolerating vitamin d in a weird way I you don't should know look if... at research to see if there's actually anything like any wide studies supporting that that's I, a cool fact i tried to but i couldn't really find anything so but it, it comes it comes back to sort of that uh in terms of the amount per day the nhs does does argue for four thousand, but that's the that's a conservative number based on studies um there are other people i think uh poliquin was arguing that people should be taking twenty thousand a day and if I remember correctly, and there's there's been various studies on like the the high doses, so the mega doses, if you want, that seem to show no negative reaction. But I think all the the, the sort of official advice from any agency you're going to look at is always going to be around the four to five thousand mark. So you were saying the other day that you plan on uh, doing a phase where you take creatine and magnesium at the same time. Yes, so remember we were talking about, I've taken creatine like three or four times in my life and it worked amazingly. Mm. However, because, maybe because of like my DNA makeup, I get a lot of muscle very quickly, Yeah. but I also become extremely tight and I've never understood why. I've looked at some of the journals and I think to myself, is it because there's, I lose a lot of water? Am I dehydrated? That's why mm. the fascia stops moving and why I feel so tight. Because it can't just be the fact I've got extra muscle around each joint. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. So then we're, so then I thought, what can I do to alleviate, alleviate that? So my plan is now, next month, is creatine phase, BCAAs and electrolyte solution, and on top of that, magnesium. Because... There's so many things magnesium does, I can't even, yeah, I can't even read off the whole list. Like, it's insane. So, for the listeners out there, in terms of the uses for magnesium, it's involved in actually about 600 reactions in the body. 
Really? 600. From energy production to protein formulation, uh, gene maintenance, muscle movement, nervous system regulation. It is, it's in everything. But we don't get enough of it. We hardly get any of it. Well, it's so hard to get from food. That's part of the problem. Because the foods that are high in magnesium are things that people typically tend to not have that often. Or they're foods that are sort of being ruined by... So we've got like dark chocolate. Yep. Nuts, seeds, whole grains, fatty fish. But in a, you know what it is? When you talk about, not to get off topic, when you talk about fatty fish, then you need to start, if you're really going into it, then you need to start looking at but what are the, which ones of these fishes are bottom feeders and which ones aren't bottom feeders. What you've also got as well about uh, fish farming because... I think when they looked into, this is on a slightly different topic, but when they looked at omega-3 content of farm salmon, they found it's lower than if it's um, wild. Yeah, because of the type of food they're given. Yeah. So look, there's a bit, there's a big problem. But back to magnesium. Yeah. You talk to me about magnesium. Well, I mean, part of the issue with magnesium and, and, and uh, having adequate amounts in your body is um, the other minerals that are around it. So magnesium, uh, sodium, potassium, and calcium all play an interactive role so one of the biggest problems you get is that you there's there's a ratio between um sodium and magnesium that means that uh if you get too much sodium in your diet which for the listener is typically found in salt it affects your magnesium levels and it brings them down so most foods that you get that are processed are high in sodium in order to or high or have high sodium content in order to keep that freshness and, and preserve it. it yeah preserve it thank you that's the word i'm looking for and therefore even if it is a magnesium rich food it's been diminished if you take say like salted nuts as an example you've just added a load of sodium on top of the the nuts that might be high in magnesium you've killed the magnesium benefit and it's the same problem with calcium so isn't it right that the calcium amount um in in a food will diminish and impact the effectiveness of the magnesium absorption because you haven't at the same time yeah so that's why um Dark chocolate is good, but milk chocolate isn't good. Because you've added the calcium in. Yeah. You've added more calcium in to kind of mess up the balance so the magnesium doesn't really um, absorb. It's more about the absorption rate. It doesn't absorb the way it should. Yeah, and, that, you know, it, it has an impact on, on absorption because if you have them too close together, the body starts trying to break the calcium down. You lose the magnesium. That's quite funny because, you know, they say they recommend to not have anything rich in calcium two hours before and two hours after taking magnesium, which, which is, is... I mean, it's a huge window because... A massive window. Because also as well, you think about foods that are high in calcium. I mean, everyone sort of knows dairy products like cheese and milk and stuff like that. But there's other foods as well, like um, so like watercress has got a relatively high content of, of calcium. So you take something like watercress and you think... That's not that's not a bad food to have, but a four-hour window is massive because if you have, say, uh, you want to have, I don't know, um, a piece of dark chocolate in the evening after dinner, and you've eaten some watercress potentially for dinner, that's it. It's out. No way. The only thing that actually made sense, even though you know, in socially it doesn't make sense, is having your magnesium content in the morning. Because you don't have to worry about two hours before because you've been asleep, you've been fasted. And then you've only got to wait two hours after having that magnesium content before continuing the day as normal. Yeah, I mean, so you'd, you'd effectively, you're saying wake up, eat a piece of dark chocolate at, say, 6am and then have 
an actual breakfast at say eight. It sounds, it, it's non-conventional, but it's the only thing that makes sense for convenience. Well, I mean, we can we can get into that because there's there's a whole raft of non-conventional things that probably make more sense. Is that it's the way that you tend to eat. So, and the way society has made you think that you know this structure is what you should follow. Yeah, the three meals a day yeah. process. Yeah, all part of the norm. Um, so going back to to magnesium, one thing that I'm still up in the air about is a lot of people talk about magnesium and the best way, the best forms to have it in. I'm still, I need to find some journals to validate my thought process. But, you know, a lot of people get intravenous drips. You know, they yeah. get like the, the kind of vitamin packs. Yeah. Would it be better to have magnesium in that form rather than having it in a tablet form? Because in a tablet form, there's a lot of um, talk about how by the time it actually gets to your gut, regardless of the form it's in, it's lost a lot of its potency because it's been involved in so many reactions from your mouth down to the gut. Uh, It's a good question because it is water soluble which means that it should be able to be taken intravenously but because it's water soluble it passes out of your system so you don't really store it that's why you constantly need to to have it in in your system so the problem with the the drip is although you might get a huge boost of it it'll come it'll come out you'd need to do that almost daily i don't mind a drip daily you get the nurse i'll find a source of magnesium well there's there's a realistic cost thing because they cost quite a lot but what the drips i know (laughs) i know so As far as I know, everyone that I've ever sort of recommended to up their magnesium has done quite well on uh, an Epsom salts bath. But the problem is you can't have an Epsom salts bath every single day. No. Because you can absorb... I've heard about absorption so much better through the skin than anywhere else. Mm. I've heard about the the creams and the oils. Yeah. Which are quite good. So the question I have now, which I'm going to have to research is, what part of the body is most effective to use for oils with magnesium? For absorption rate? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because you don't know, do you? I mean, you spray it on the affected area and you presume that that's the best place to put it because it's right above the area that's got the problem. But we don't know how it absorbs. It doesn't know if it, when it goes into the skin, whether it moves around and, and you know, goes through a process. If it's, if it's water-soluble, I would assume that it being in an oil format is actually some sort of barrier, maybe, because it's oil. So it's not going to mix with the water inside your body. So it's not going to be as, yeah. So it's not as water-soluble as it was before. Whereas the Epsom salts are in a bath. And but, the heat of the bath opens the pores up and therefore makes it... And that's that's why I've always found that people find it better with the, with the bath. But I agree with you. You can't do it every day. But I'm pretty certain you're not supposed to anyway. But if you're saying that, if it's involved in that many reactions in the body and you need it literally every day and you've picked baths as a form, then why not? I think it depends on how active you are, because there's issues if you've got too much magnesium just as much as anything else. Yeah, but if it's water-soluble, why won't it just pass straight through? It affects the balance of your sodium and potassium and calcium content, so I think it impacts your potentially your bones because of the calcium. With sodium, sodium is hugely important in the body. We have too much of it, so people tend to... Salt has a bad rap, right? But... The reason why the word salary exists is because in Latin it means salt. So Roman soldiers were paid a salary, so they were paid in salt because salt was so important and so hard to get that they were given salt as payment. That's how valuable it was. So when you take like, uh, it's only it's only in the modern sort of era, like last 100, 150 years, where we've had a salt issue in foods because we've been using it as a preservative. 
so it's in too many of our foods. But if you look at sort of natural salt levels in most foods, it's, it's virtually non-existent, apart from in some meats. So that ratio can get upset if you have magnesium baths too often. So going back to the intensity level, if, if you're doing quite intensive training, for the sake of argument, you're an ultra endurance marathon runner, you could probably do a magnesium bath every day. You're probably okay with that. But you probably also need to top up your sodium levels anyway, because they're gonna be low. If you do blood testing, seeing what magnesium levels you've got naturally at that point, seeing if they're on the low end or not, and then you can use that as a base point to figure out. See, I was thinking about that too, but the problem with that is, you know, there's a certain group of people who will get the testing done all the time. Mm. But for the other group who don't have the money to get the testing done and get the supplements, ultimately, we would say to you probably have a magnesium bath or Epsom salts bath every like two days, two or three days. That way you can be safe. Because you know you're going to get enough of the salt in your diet due to the fact that actually everything has a surplus of salt. Yeah. But that will be a good way of averaging out between the two or every three days. Yeah, that's that's that, that basically boils down to it's, it's two to three days a week is, is sort of the recommended amount. And obviously, if you're following a relatively clean eating pattern anyway, you're going to get some from food. Hi, listeners. Thank you for listening to part one. Part two will be coming soon. We've got a lot more to get through. We've got BCAAs, creatine, all the other key things that you guys may want to take as supplements or already do take as supplements. Have a good week and you'll hear from us soon.